Right to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity. My name's Emma, I'm the team lead for volunteers in Newcastle, and I'll be talking to Asma Patel, the director of Endless Medical Advantage. Um, So Asma, please will you tell us a bit about Endless Medical Advantage and the projects that it's carrying out in Lebanon, as well as the refugee context over there? Of course. Uh, Hi, Emma. Um, First of all, thanks uh, so much for having me on on this uh, podcast. I'm really happy to be here and hopefully give you a bit of insight about what it is that we do um, in the context here in, in Lebanon. Uh, my name is Asma Patel. Um, I'm from the UK um, and I've been part of this uh, particular initiative um, in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon for about four years now. Um, the organisation is called Endless Medical Advantage um, and it started off uh, with a core focus on primary health care, particularly for the refugee communities living in um, the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. It started out by a Syrian refugee himself, um, a GP, a doctor who'd kind of worked in Syria during the war uh, before fleeing, um, then came to Lebanon and uh, perchance met a British GP um, uh, on a, another healthcare project with a local, another local organization um, working with refugees and the host vulnerable Lebanese community. Um, and the idea of a, a mobile clinic um, came up, um, really trying to find a solution to provide primary healthcare services um, in a way that reduces uh, several barriers to access. Um, to give you a little bit of context as to why this particular initiative and idea was so important, um, was really around how and where refugees live in Lebanon um, and where they are located. Um, Refugee communities are still living in what are officially known as informal tented settlements. Um, In in other words, more colloquially called refugee camps. Um, And they are often isolated um, and located in remote areas of the Bekaa Valley. Um, So often getting to um, a health clinic a hospital, a laboratory, any kind of um, clinical service usually requires transport um, and that has a cost which is particularly expensive here in Lebanon. Um, The consultation for medical treatment and care also has a cost attached. Um, Healthcare in Lebanon is privatised and there aren't many subsidies um, and support available particularly for refugees. Um, Then you've got to pay for the medication and and then if there's follow-up and all sorts. The idea to then bring healthcare directly to the communities was what led to the idea of a mobile service. Um, And that's how uh, Endless Medical Advantage or EMA, as it's known more kind of locally, uh, was established. Um, A van was bought, a very small, uh, very cosy van, which was converted into a small clinic. Um, And Dr. Frass, our co-founder, started uh, working in some of the local camps that he was aware of. Him being Syrian himself was a huge advantage, um, having already relationships and trust and and, and buy-in from the community being doctor himself, having worked during the war, um, having a real lived experience and understanding and insight of what it's like to live in these environments and what the requirements are and what's needed. Um, So very slowly, that's how the project started. Um, Dr. Frass was on his own, um, on the ground. 
he was the driver, he was logistics, he was the pharmacist, he was the doctor, um, really kind of just going to provide um, very basic primary clinical services on a day-to-day basis in a lot in some of the local camps around. Um, he started off with about uh, seven camps um, in the local area. And over the last four years, um, we've really developed the organization um, and, and really branched out into other local areas. And we now cover about 50 camps um, across th- three geographical areas. Um, and we've def- and we've got a bigger team, um, not just Dr. Frass leading the team on the ground, but we've got other doctors, um, other support staff, field team, um, and some admin support that really helps us to kind of have an impact and, and develop the work that's really needed to support both refugee communities here, but also the vulnerable Lebanese communities who have been suffering over the last couple of years due to the economic crisis in Lebanon, um, the the downfall of the local Lebanese lira, which has um, really been hit by uh, rising rates of inflation. Um, the coronavirus pandemic has had a huge impact on the health sector in Lebanon, where 30% of the Lebanese healthcare workers have left um, the country. Uh, outbreak of more recently, cholera has also had an impact on the water services. Um, food security has been an all-time low. Unemployment is at an all-time low. And the collapse of the government has had further impacts and implications on um, the economy of the country, which is now um, challenging for all citizens in Lebanon, not just the refugee communities, not just the Palestinians who've been here for a long time, but also the Lebanese who are who are now unfortunately really suffering um, due to the, the near collapse of, of the country. Um, just off of the back of that, I was just wondering how long you had been working with MA, EMA and any recent or everyday challenges that you face um, as you kind of go about your everyday life. So I've been with the organisation, um, it's uh, it's literally four years, a couple of days ago. Um, I joined uh, EMA when it was just recently established it was about three or four months old um and i heard about the organizations perchance over a a facebook group um i was mutually connected to to several people who'd been working in and out of lebanon in calais uh, in greece um kind of in in various sectors um working with refugees and at the time i'd finished volunteering um uh in the middle east elsewhere and i was looking for an opportunity to kind of support an organization and an initiative that could really utilize some of my skills and experiences. Um, I heard about them, I contacted them, they needed someone to come and join for about three months as a, a ground coordinator to kind of really help, um, especially help Dr. Frass on the ground. Um, and I'd been to Lebanon before and I was really interested in, in learning more and, and being able to contribute in some way. So I came out here in, in January 2019 um initially uh only supposed to be here for, for three months um but the age-old story as as often what happens in the humanitarian sector um i i kind of fell in love with um the ethos of this particular work the community what we were trying to achieve um and really the drive and ambition behind what dr Faras wanted to to build um and it really wasn't just an organization or initiative it was a real movement to to build something that was refugee-led and to really provide something for the community by the community um so my kind of three months turned into six months six months turned into a bit longer 
and, and four years later, I'm still here. Um, the the two co-founders um, asked me about six months in to take on more of a leadership role. Um, and so I joined uh, and took on the role as development director alongside Dr. Faras, who's a medical director, to really help um, push the organization forward, um, help with a lot of the networking, the fundraising, communications, and, and building up a profile for the organization in the international community to really um, get us support and, and help us kind of move forward in, in our plans. Um, it hasn't been without its challenges, as you rightly said, Emma. Um, Lebanon's context is, is particularly difficult. Um, working here um, is really hard, especially for the Syrian communities, because more often than not, they can't legally work in most sectors. Um, so NGO workers usually find ways around, they work with the local Lebanese, um, there are several bits of paperwork and, and all different types of permissions that you need to gain in order to work um, for the refugees and to support refugees in particular. Um, you also need to um, have people that you know, it's how things work in the Middle East, um, and really find ways and be creative in, in how you operate. Um, Dr. Faras, who'd been working here in Lebanon for some time, um, is really good at this. Um, he's really well connected, he's really well liked, respected, um, and has built really good relationships with a lot of, not just organisations, a lot of the local community, um, but lots of other people of influence within the community to be able to build up um, the organization and really support, support those in need. Um, I think one thing that has also helped us is that we haven't been a exclusively organization supporting refugees. We've been established to support anyone in need and those who are living in vulnerable situations. And that has included the Palestinian communities living around us, as well as more recently, the, the vulnerable Lebanese who've been suffering in spite of the economic situation here in Lebanon. Um, the other challenges that we faced, um, I think in particular to the context here in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, is that we are surrounded by mountains. Um, every winter brings uh, rainstorms, snowstorms, really cold weather. Um, and this leads to really difficult living conditions for the for the refugees living in camps, as often most of them don't have proper heating supplies. Um, so you can imagine a lot of the health conditions and medical conditions are, are worsened over this particular period. Um, during the economic crisis, there's been a medication crisis um, and therefore... Um, inflation has led to really high costs for medications that we usually provide in our clinic, um, reducing our capacity to be able to provide medications for all our patients. Again, being being, being creative in, in how we support and how we treat and then how we refer um, has been something that we've been flexible with over the last couple of years. Um, the coronavirus pandemic has also brought its various challenges, um, along with the more recent cholera outbreak, um, really trying to respond to all the upcoming emergencies. Um, one of our biggest challenges, I think, of the last year has been the sheer volume of patients um, and individuals who've contacted us. Um, having been around for four years, we're, we're very visible. Uh, a lot of the communities know us. Um, uh, they, the, the communities we work with, they refer us to their friends, their families, other local camps. Um, and as a result, we've received a phenomenal number of calls and referrals from communities who want us to take our mobile clinics to their camps or their areas. Unfortunately, our capacity just has not allowed it uh, because we don't have enough doctors. Um, 
we don't have enough mobile clinics, units, not enough medications. Um, that's all down to budget uh, funds and finances. And unfortunately, in the last year, um, I think due to the, the situation in Lebanon, um, funds have been cut, um, global funds to support humanitarian work um, in Lebanon, in the Middle East. So um, it's been, I guess, my job to really find different avenues and, and different income streams so that we can continue operating, we can continue developing and, and really be able to provide our services to, to all of those um, in need around us. Thank you so much for that. That was really insightful. I was just wondering whether there was any particular stories that have particularly impacted you or really conveys the importance of the work that EMA does. Um. Yeah, there are many. Um, I guess which ones to choose from. I think it's the, the the small impacts that have really made an impact, had an impact on me personally. Um, you know, we my, one of my jobs is to to evaluate our data annually, put together kind of our annual impact reports, and the numbers speak for themselves. You know, they're impressive even even for for myself. But what's really had an impact on me and what one of the reasons why I, I think I've stayed as long as I have and invested, I guess, myself um, in this organization um, and really fallen in love with um, with how it works and what it does is um, the, the small the small things that we've been able to achieve, um, not just independently, but as a team. Um, for example, there's a there was a case of a small boy um, who had trouble walking some kind of physical impairment some kind of physical disability um we one of the reasons we developed our physiotherapy clinic um middle of last year was uh, directly uh, resulting from the sheer number of patients with disabilities we'd see in our primary health clinic so with some funding we received from a grant last year we opened a small physiotherapy clinic um hired a local physiotherapist and have been referring patients with for long-term and short-term physiotherapy care um there was one particular boy uh, living in one of the camps um quite difficult poor living conditions um had a physical disability that was never really seen to when he was young and therefore the the disability had progressed and and the boy was unable to really walk move very much and was very much assisted from his family members particularly his mother and sister uh we referred him uh, we kept in touch with our physiotherapist and she was um, having intense physiotherapy sessions with him once a week. Um, a few months went by and, and we hadn't you know, visited. We'd been in touch with our physio and this uh, we visited the camp where this family live. And we saw this boy running, playing football um, with a couple of other children uh, in the, the little yard outside. Um, and I remember going to one of the ladies and I was like, oh, what, what's that boy's name? He was really familiar and I couldn't really place him and I couldn't remember why. And she told me, oh, this is so-and-so. Um, and I asked, I was like, oh my God, is this the child that, you know, has been having physiotherapy sessions? She was like, yes, yes. She called his mum. She said, and the mum was ever so grateful, but she was so happy that this, this child had, in the last few months, gone from doctors telling her that he would never walk again to him running and playing football in the yard with um with other children in the community i think cases like this um you know they're they're small they're small things they're small um initiatives that i guess we've been running or, or we've been trying out um but they're they're actually changing lives for people um and they're hopefully improving their lives and 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 giving them hope for a better future which i think is what 
my personal aim is with this particular organization and, and really being able to do that for as many more people as possible. Thank you. That's amazing. Um, I was just wondering what advice you would give for people wanting to get into this area of work. Um, I think um, volunteering is really important. Um, it sounds really cliche. Um, it's how I started out. It's how a lot of um, some of my friends who are also in the sector started out. Um, and I think it's the best way to really gain insights and understanding into, uh, first of all, the sector itself. Um, the humanitarian sector is huge. Uh, working with the refugee communities is also huge. It varies from place to place, community to community, um, sector to sector. And without volunteering or without gaining the insights, um, the experiences, uh, parts of the language, the cultural norms and differences, um, the food, um, all of these things have a huge impact on, on um, how and which direction you might want to move in. Um, so I would always recommend people to volunteer and, and go and try, uh, spend your time, give your time, um, if capacity allows it, um, to see kind of where you might find your place within um, this particular sector. I think one of the challenges I've, I've definitely found, um, especially from volunteering and volunteers coming from the West, um, including myself, um, is that volunteering has become um it's, it's quite fashionable it can be quite trendy um and there is there's a there's that fine line between volunteering and volunteer tourism um and i having volunteered previously before and and having seen kind of various things i was very conscious of not wanting to go and volunteer and and be this person coming from the west to a community that you know, is a poor community and doesn't really have very much hope and someone comes from outside and helps to make it better. Um, I was really, really conscious of that and volunteering really made me more conscious of my privilege and wanting to do something where I could contribute, not to go in and help and, and take leadership of. Um, and that's something that's really stuck with me. And I think volunteering over the years has really helped me to, to harness that. Um, we have a lot of international volunteers who join us um, here, particularly doctors, nurses, medical students who come out, um, support our clinical activities, support our work on the ground. Um, and really it's 50% um, of the time it's really helpful for them to, to develop their medical skills and really learn medicine in a completely different capacity but the other 50 percent we always ask their feedback at the end and the the 50 percent is around um what they learn about the communities and the culture and the language um and where people come from um and, and the impacts that that has on them wanting to to do more in the sector or or do more in the future wherever that may be um so i think it always starts it starts from there it starts from volunteering um and it can lead to absolutely anything on the back of you talking about volunteer tourism, if someone was planning to go and volunteer, how would you suggest that they could avoid this? Is there any certain things that you would say um, they need to be aware of or from your experience that you found? I think often where there are organisations accepting volunteers and you've got to pay um fees to volunteer with them um or fundraise fundraise you know, you know small amounts of money to go fundraise uh to volunteer with them i think those are always a few red flags um to keep an eye out for um because 
often those organizations are um, in my experience anyway um, they are um, running on the support of volunteers um, but they're also using these funds to support their work but also support volunteers that are there um, and in that capacity sometimes volunteers aren't able to get involved as they um, as they might want to um, another way I think to avoid it is to really try to find volunteering with organizations that are led by the local communities that um, that they're they're trying to support um, often organizations that are fully run by international volunteers but in countries that are foreign to those volunteers um, are also often quite challenging because the context is completely different um, and it's difficult to to marry up um, the expectations of internationals being run by internationals but for a community that is often quite alien to them um, so really trying to find organizations and, and projects um, that are either fully led or semi-led by those within the community itself it has a huge impact and makes a huge difference thank you so much um and finally, if someone listening to this podcast wanted to help the work of EMA, what could they do realistically to help either from their homes or over where you guys are in Lebanon? Um, so definitely lots of different ways. Um, if you are someone with a medical background, um, either a doctor, a nurse, a medical student, um, or working in the medical sector in some capacity, um, and you have some time and would like to volunteer, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can contact us on our website. Um, it's www.endlessmedicaladvantage.org. Um, we've been really fortunate with international volunteers who come out. Um, and I think one of the biggest advantages is not just having them with us on ground, but when they do join us, they see for themselves um, the environment and the situation and, and the conditions um, where we work. Um, they take their experiences and, and, and their insights back with them. They speak to their friends, their families, um, their own communities and, and raise awareness in a way that often might not be the best uh, or the easiest, often through social media. Um, so that's those with a, a medical background. Um, for those who kind of want to support in other capacities um, and might not have the actual time, um, we are also often supported by lots of individual donors um, and supporters from around the world. A lot of people um, often donate to our regular fundraising campaigns um, that we run usually through GoFundMe. Um, we have a PayPal account. We have a UK registered charity bank account as we're a registered charity in the UK now, have been almost for two years. Um, and um, tell people about what we do. Um, I think raising awareness about not just us as an organization in Lebanon, but the context and situation in Lebanon is really important. Um, the Syria war started over 11 years ago now. Um, Syrians are living in the same conditions, if not worse, um, than when they first came to Lebanon. Um, and the country itself is in a really difficult and dire situation. But um, it's been forgotten about. People are talking less and less about it. There are more pressing concerns around the world. There's a financial recession in the West. There's a Ukraine-Russia war. Um, there are always new things that are coming up. But the situation conditions in Lebanon are, are probably some of the worst that this country has ever seen. So I think for people to raise awareness about it, um, to recommend us as an organization, um, to visit us if you're ever in Lebanon. Um, we often have lots of visitors, whether it's journalists, photographers, um, people who are just interested in knowing about what we do. 
um, to learn more. Um, and education always, always um, kind of passes through. Um, it's really helpful for, for, for people to learn and know um, and who knows what that leads to. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having me.